You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I can't tell you how excited I am today uh, to visit with my guest. I, as a podcast host, I've had a, a, a small bucket list dream. You know, a lot of people get the chance to talk to and interview uh, Navy SEALs, and I now finally have my own SEAL showing up for the show. <laughs> His name is Marty Strong. Marty, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Doug. Yeah, and thank you for your service in all seriousness. And we will talk a little bit more about that chapter in, in your life. But um, give us your own version of, of the short story of your trajectory, all the things you've done, and, and how it is you've gotten to where you are today. The short version. So the short version is I, I was born in the Midwest of the United States in the state of Nebraska. And my parents... Uh, took me to Japan for about four years when I was around 11 years old. They got divorced there. I went back to Nebraska and I joined the Navy at the age of 16. Uh, actually went into boot camp just as I turned 17 and through a mistake of orders, I ended up at the Navy SEAL training uh, command out in San Diego, California, where uh, a senior enlisted uh, Navy SEAL listened to my, my, my story, my pitiful little story of being <laughs> in the wrong place. And, uh, and instead he decided he liked something about me and he uh, talked me into volunteering. And that's how I ended up being a Navy SEAL for 20 years. I did uh, 10 years as an enlisted SEAL and 10 years as an officer and then retired and went to manage money for uh, one firm. And then eventually for United Bank of Switzerland as a portfolio manager. And then uh, after that eight-year stint in financial services, I went on to become an executive and CEO and basically a strategist for several companies. And that's my role today. Well, not to at all make light of it, but clearly when we talk about leadership and leadership development, there are a number of professionals who were themselves SEALs, uh, Navy SEALs, and they are now running leadership development programs. They have been cited by other authorities like Simon Sinek and John Maxwell and others. There, there's, there's something about that SEAL training that the public at large gravitates to. So I, I'm, I'm going to ask maybe the painfully obvious, what do you think that is? What, what is that mistake that uh, people gravitate toward? It's a great question. Uh, I I asked myself that question when I when I wrote my first book, Being Nimble. It was I was trying to encapsulate the answer to that question. You know, what is it that has made me different? Has made uh, me impactful as a leader? How have I say been different from my peers that weren't either in the military and especially in the SEAL teams? And and I think in that book, what I tried to stress was the creative and resilient nature of SEALs, that that transcends, you know, the industry, the job description, et cetera. You know, you, you have it when you're, when you're going through the basic selection course, it's a part of you, it's part of your DNA. You probably, and I know I wasn't aware of it at the time, 
wasn't even sure why that would be an attribute of any value going forward. But what they're doing in the SEAL training is they're trying to trying to put you through a, a gauntlet of challenges and, and tests. And they sit back and they wait and see how you're going to decide whether you have the ability to keep putting one foot in front of the other or whether you decide, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's the resilience part. Later on, once you get through that, they start to teach you how to think in a more free-spirited, open-minded way, very creative kind of free-willing approach to mission planning, to assessing threats, looking for opportunities, which then starts to forge your judgment. And after lots of missteps and, and opportunities to succeed, you eventually you know, evolve into having some sort of wisdom related to decision-making. And, and all of that is also translatable over to you know, other, other areas of life, whether you're a father, uh, running a business, or you're a professional. So the, um, the answer really is that, that SEALs have this innate drive to be creative, to drive to be different and to think differently, to not just assume and accept the status quo or even what, what history's uh, premise might indicate the future is going to be. And, and then we learn through hard experience that when we're told this is the way it's going to be, where you go, and this is how it's going to feel, this is what's going to happen, this is how many people are going to be there, 99 times out of 100, that ain't the way it goes down. So, so real practical experience has taught you that you can plan, you can think, you can ask all the experts what has happened in the past. But trying to plan and think, looking in the rearview mirror, doesn't really work. Right, right. Well, and not that it is anywhere close, but my own experience with my Army training taught me the valuable lesson that you can always do more physically and mentally than you think you can when, when the circumstance faces you and you have to have that sort of trained experience challenging that idea and where punching out or opting out is is not really a good option you you have to go ahead and endure and go through it and then you come out on the other side realizing hey i i have another level i have another gear i i have another capacity that i didn't think i had and so as a young man, for me, going through that aspect of my own military training, I, I, I still reflect on that. When I face a life challenge, I, I often ask myself the question, all right, how's this really different? How, you know, is this another one of those moments I just need to be resilient, persevere and endure and, and get through it? And I, I can find the resolve to do that. Yes, and in the this interesting thing about the SEAL and most most special op operations units, it's a volunteer organization. So at any time during the training, at any level of training, you can just raise your hand and say, I don't want to do this anymore, and you're done. There, you're not being forced to do it. You're not being forced to take on the next challenge. And that's an odd thing. It's it's like it's like the free will concept. You know, you have free will in a military organization to just walk away from it. Yeah, and and that means that puts the onus on you to decide to stay, to decide to, to persevere and endure. And the longer you do it, the more you you know and understand how bad it can get. Because anybody in any special unit for sure will tell you that whatever their selection process looked like, whatever they went through in the initial stages of their career, they were in far worse situations 
later on when they were actually a professional operator. I mean, you know, several, several um, factors worse, several levels worse than what they endured. And, and, and as you said, even at the end of those experiences, you're left thinking I could probably have taken a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, anyway, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting phenomenon. Well, let me ask you this. When you left the military and went into your, your banking world, what, what was your own transition journey there? Was there anything specific that you found immediately valuable to transfer? And, and conversely, was there anything about your military thinking that just simply didn't work in that corporate world? Well, the, the first thing I was faced with after I went through four months of licensing, training and testing and studying was it was about sales. And you had to go out and find clients, high net worth clients, and you had to convince them to put their money with you. And, uh, you know, I thought in the beginning, yeah, I can do that. I've done all kinds of crazy stuff that's more difficult than that. And then I realized that uh, on my very first day, after I had all my licenses and I was staring at the computer, I said, I don't know anybody and nobody's, <laughs> and nobody's ever taught me to sell. I had an undergraduate in business and a, uh, and a graduate degree in management. And I, there wasn't a single class on how to sell. And, and I was thinking very literally at that time, sell a thing, a product or service. I wasn't thinking selling conceptually and convincing and influencing. So I almost quit. I, I, I sat there and said, I made a big mistake. I mean, I, I don't even have this key skill set to even launch this thing. That's the first thing. The second thing was back to our resilience discussion. I, I said, okay, after two days, I thought I can quit. And I dragged a family, little kids out of the Navy into this new profession. So I, you know, I, I had a lot of egg in my face, at least in my own mind, because I hadn't told my wife yet. Um, I said, all right, I can quit and find a regular job. Or I can figure out a way to do this and try as hard as I can. And then if it, I just can't do it, I can quit and find another regular job. So I decided to go with that second path. And, and I decided I just, I'm going to outwork my ignorance. I'm going to cold call and cold walk and do everything I can possibly can to meet everybody I possibly can. And just through sheer force of will and the volume of interaction with people I don't know, I'm going to figure it out. And I started talking to people that were salespeople that I knew, uh, some people in the family. And they're saying, oh, yeah, you can sell. You can sell all day long. You just, you're just overthinking this. And I didn't believe them because I, I still didn't know how to sell. And I was basically, the, the circular logic was I didn't know how to sell because I wasn't trained to sell. And they were saying 90% of being able to sell is faith and confidence in what you're selling and faith and confidence in your own abilities. And that comes through. So you're already there. You're like better off than most people who have gone through sales courses. You just don't even realize it. I finally realized it probably about six months in and I started doing seminars. And that was the first transferable skill from the military into the new profession. That was the ability to stand up in front of people, communicate, explain, present complex materials, but also make it very thematic and inspirational because I had done that over and over and over again as a mission planner, as a SEAL leader, uh, briefing uh, planning contingencies to senior senior U.S. commanders, I could do that all day long. And that's when my my career actually took off. That I started doing seminars almost every week of some size, and uh, yeah, so that that that's how my transition and my trans and my progression 
looked like. That's an interesting uh, spin on on it. And uh, first off, I'll, I'll accentuate that idea that selling is not really about the thing. It's it's that idea of belief in what you've got and how you want to do it, and basically just showing up as a resource to to the potential buyers of your service, but you don't really think of them as buyers. But I've often heard it described as, think of it as serving them, you know, helping their situation get better. Yeah, especially in what I ended up doing for most of my career in the financial world was um, high net worth clients that had a lot of money, were, were working hard and didn't want to work about, think about or talk about their money. They just wanted to go out and make it. And it was all about trust, but you ended up being a strategic partner either with them, their family, or their, their uh, corporate or business organization. And so you were kind of on the same side of the table, you know, and again, back to the mission planning, you know, okay, you give me a set of challenges, you give me deadlines and timelines and, and metrics and milestones. I can sit there and work that all out on a board for you and pull it out of you, kind of facilitate it and say, all right, these are our options. This is the path I think we should take. And this is how we should deploy your assets or how we should avoid this issue or, or seize this opportunity. And I'd get a head nod and they would perceive me as I had presented myself as a partner in their future. And when, when I made that transition through the seminar process, I felt more like a teacher and partner than I ever did a salesperson. And I've kind of kept that mode ever since in all my profession, uh, professional uh, business career afterwards. Yeah. So just curious, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on that, but as you came up with this idea to do the seminars, uh, so how are you attracting people to sit in and attend those? Oh, yeah. The blood, sweat, and tears of sending out thousands of, of at the time, uh, wedding-style invitations. So it's what, what, three part, a three-part mailer, right? So you have the envelope, you have the, the, uh, the invitation itself, and then you have the RSVP card and another little four-part and another little envelope that's already stamped. So you have a pre-stamped RSVP envelope, a small RSVP card, the invite card, and then the main envelope. And a, uh, a gentleman named Doug Tishner, who is uh, a wholesaler for a mutual fund firm out of Chicago, told me how to do this. And uh, he actually sponsored my first uh, seminar. So I had a list of 5,000 socioeconomic potential uh, attendees, and I sent out five or 600 envelopes. My kids helped me stuff them. My wife helped address them. We, uh, we stuck real stamps on them. We followed all of his instructions. We launched them, and then there was about a six-touch program that he said absolutely works. So it was pre-calls, calls to the people that did RSVP. Then you did the, did the event. And then after the event, you called everybody that attended. And then you called everybody that didn't attend. You called everybody that said they were going to attend, but didn't attend. And then you send out another mailer to all the people that never RSVP'd, letting them know what a great event it was and inviting them to the next one, which meant you were working your tail off on a per event basis, all in probably about 15 targeted activities per event. The event only being one of the actual activities. And if you're going to do that, that over and over again, like I was doing, they were all overlapped on the, on the schedule. So 
essentially I set this kind of waterfall cascading series of, of constant mailings, calls, and events. And, and it worked. I mean, it, it really kickstarted the business. And I went from a handful of clients to you know, probably a thousand within four years. Wow. Awesome. That, that's great. And, and as you were describing all that, you know, I, I go back down memory lane too in my banking days and remember a lot of those techniques as well. And wow, there's so many better tools nowadays to do a lot of that outreach and contact work. There is, but, but that wedding style invitation, we're actually having some, some uh, great success with recruiting doctors and nurses right now because it isn't high tech or social media related. People, people get that in the mail and it doesn't look like spam and it looks like, you know, it's personalized and very few people will take something that nice and just toss it in the trash without opening it. Right. Right. Yeah. And the, the big challenge is it, it, it's a progressively more expensive opportunity because postage alone is up to 60 something cents a stamp and, you know, but, yeah. but if you're, if your ticket's right, you know, it's, it's yeah. worth every penny of it. You're, you're bypassing sales resistance is what you're really doing. So, right. Right. <clears throat> Getting through to it. Well, let's, uh, let's turn the page a little bit. Let me, let me touch on another thing that I saw in, in your backstory that is significant and something that, uh, uh, sadly a, a good number of listeners may likewise experience. You had the, uh, experience of losing a child along the way. Is that right? Well, it was my son and he was, he was 22 and yeah, that, that happened in 2006. Mm. And what, uh, talk about a test of resilience and fortitude. Yeah. So the irony is, I think it's irony anyway. Um, he was in the air force. <clears throat> he volunteered, <clears throat> excuse me, to go to Iraq. He, uh, when I talked to him on the phone, um, I said, so why, why did you volunteer? What, you know, what was your thought process? And he, and he quoted a line from the opening of the movie Patton. He paraphrased it. And he said, because when I'm bouncing my grandson on my knee and he asked me, what did I do in the great global war on terror? I don't want to tell him I was, I was shoveling crap in Utah. And uh, so I laughed and I said, okay, I get it. And he joined because of nine 11. And uh, so Family members are concerned and everything. And I said, look, guys, he'll be safer than you can possibly imagine. He's going to be surrounded by people that are all protecting each other, care about each other. And statistically, the odds of him dying in combat over there are is far less than dying in a car crash in the United States. Well, he survived the tour and he died in a car crash in the United States. Wow. About uh, two months after he got back from Iraq. Golly. <clears throat> yeah. In, in in the morning during an ice storm on in the middle of the week so yeah well uh, certainly not to make light of it but it's it, to me it's one of those it, it just proves when it's your time it's your time and it it's not going to be a matter of circumstance or condition so much yeah and i think you should be you should live life that way right you should live life prepared for that to happen because it's going to happen eventually and uh, especially in my profession, I, I know so many people that left this world when they were very, very young. With the only probably caveat in the case of people in uniform is in the special operations community, people are doing what they love and they're doing it with the people they love. 
And if they die in combat, they, they know they died doing the thing that, that, that defined them. It doesn't mean the loss is any worse for everybody else, but that's their mindset. And you know that because you've been there and you, you, you think it through and you go, yeah, that's how I would feel too. And, and then, you know, family members that have gone by, gone by the way, mostly older people now, um, parents, et cetera. So he, um, he ended up, he ended up leaving early at 22. I have five kids total. He's one of the five. And, uh, you think about it from time to time, like, what would he be like now? He'd be, I think 39, almost 40 years old. And would he have a family? You know, what kind of father would he be and everything? So those thoughts pop into your head, but we, we all, every time somebody walks out the door, when you say goodbye to him to go to work, whatever, you got to think, Hey, you know, bygones, right? whatever arguments you have with people, whatever petty little issues you have with people, if you care about them, you know, don't let them live the day, live out the day. The next day, start, start fresh. Cause you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I pretty much do the same thing in my house. Uh, when any part of the family, my wife included, when, when they're heading out and I'm not going with them, there's a, there's a genuine moment of goodbye, you know, kiss them and hug them and, and send them on their way. And it, 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 you know, it may feel a little bit small and petty at the moment, but like you say, it, the reality yeah. is it could be the last one. So yeah. always something to think about. Well, let's, uh, let, let's move on. You have written a number of books. Well, what has been your theme and inspiration for the books you've worked on? So I have two different categories. So I have nine novels that are published and they're in two different series. One's a time travel series. And the other one is a, um, a SEAL series. The SEAL series is not about me at all. It's uh, a fictional character that was a composite of mostly young officers. When I became an officer, I was already a 10-year veteran of the SEAL teams and a senior enlisted. So I didn't have a lot of the, um, I didn't have to suffer through the learning curve that most young officers have to go through. But I sure as heck suffered through the, the learning curve of being under a lot of young officers and the mistakes they made. So I had a lot of material there. And I started with that. And it wasn't, in some aspects, it was cathartic in that I was able to kind of live through and live out certain aspects through that character that of, of a career that maybe I didn't see, or I was able to accentuate and amplify elements of being a SEAL that most people wouldn't be aware of, uh, even in the movies and things. You know, movies and, and TV shows are, tend to be kind of two-dimensional. It's very difficult to get deep into the character and I think there's some 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 uh, series and, and uh, media media I guess depictions of seals and other special operations units that get close sometimes, but they you know they only have two hours to make it all happen. So I tried to do that in the seal books in the time travel series. It's all it's called the Time Warrior Saga. So it's all about truth and honor and brotherhood and going back in time into a, an era where uh, it's swords and shields and spears. There's no firearms or whatever. So it's down to bravery, courage, individual skill, and counting on each other. Again, very much a SEAL theme, uh, what they call the warrior ethos in the SEAL teams or the brotherhood. And uh, that was fun to write because I, I got into Thai boxing or Muay Thai late in life when I was 52 and ended up getting the equivalent of a black belt three years later. And I was writing this right towards the end. And so I was incorporating all these preparatory training, everything, you know, physical, mental, uh, obviously the weapons and technical and everything I was learning about sports medicine, 
supplements, everything. I, I kind of built that in. But what would it be like in the future to prepare somebody for this, these these uh, these time trips back into a very violent era? All of the proceeds of those novels go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. Um, and and I'm not going to extend those series, but I'm, I'm finishing the third business book. I have one and a half chapters left before I send it to the publisher. So I am going to go and write another novel. I'm, I'm, I'm hungry to do that. The other two are business books, uh, Be Nimble and uh, Be Visionary, which I wrote those to start preparing to be a uh, consultant and paid motivational speaker, which I've been doing a little bit of both of those things ever since the first book came out January of last year. And in in terms of some leadership messaging, what do you see as essential thinking that someone who is trying to run a business or, or build a company, in your mind, what are the key things they ought to be focused on doing as leader of that enterprise? So the title of, the, of each book, one the first one's Be Nimble, the second one's Be Visionary. And the third one is be different. Those, those three themes are, are what I talk to leaders about, what I talk to business owners about, whether I'm consulting professionally or whether they're just asking me my opinion or asking for some help. You have to be flexible and you have to be adaptable. And I don't care if you're a startup. Obviously, you have to be all those things if you're a startup. But you have to be the same thing if you're leading a division in a larger organization because that division essentially is its own little business unit. So you have to think in an entrepreneurial way. And to be entrepreneurial means to take risks. You're calculating, but you're probably taking more risks than the average business manager who's maintaining status quo. There's more at stake if you fail. And you have to be ready to deal with a negative event. And you also have to be ready to jump and seize an opportunity, a positive opportunity. I was having a conversation with somebody lately that said, he gave me a story about how somebody walked up and asked him in a convention, how much would, would you charge me if, for 1,000 of these things that you do? And he wasn't prepared to make 1,000 things, whatever. It's a, it was a technology um, product. So he didn't answer with an answer. He answered by talking about what the process would be like to try to eventually figure out how to put together enough of them and, and then... He said, years later, I look back at that. Once I was an experienced entrepreneur and business owner, I said, that was really dumb. I mean, I, I, should have, I should have seen that window of opportunity and I should have jumped through it and said, give me 15 minutes, I'll go get a calculator and I'll come back and I'll give you my price. <laughs> you know, and, and everybody I've talked to that has had moments like that, the, the successful people, most of them have jumped through that. They get a phone call. Can you train 2000 sailors? Yes, click. Oh my God, how am I going to train 2,000 sailors? But they end up saying yes first. They take the leap of faith. They jump through that window of opportunity. And that's part of being nimble and agile and, and courageous, which is what you have to be. The other, the other two parts, being different is all about being creative and innovative. And that's, that could be something as simple as just how you structure your business or how you orient, you know, the, the floor plan of your, of your restaurant. There's, there's a lot of ways to be innovative and creative. It, do, it doesn't mean you have to be an artist. You, you can just think a little around the corners and think outside the box and, and come up with a different angle, a different way that you see is practically the way to do it, even though that's not 
the general best practice that everybody is telling you is the only way you can do it. And being visionary is about thinking about the future. If, you know, metaphor or the, or, or the analogy I always use is if you get so good at executing, if you get so good at the finite details, it's like focusing on the railroad track and you never look up to realize that the light that's about to hit you is a, is a train coming in your direction. So you have to be thinking, kind of zooming out and zooming in as a, as a business leader of any size business, I'd say daily. You, you, every, every day you have to stop for a second. I usually do it early in the morning to zoom out. What's it look like on the horizon? Do a 360 degree scan, threats, opportunities, something's coming at me, something I thought was coming at me, isn't coming at me, whatever, assess, got it. Now let's go into the details of the day. And if you do that, you think about the details of the day in bigger picture strategic context. If all you do is think about the details of the day, you never, you miss that whole second part of the equation. So those three things, be nimble and agile, be visionary and strategic, and be different, meaning being creative and innovative. Let me touch on that idea of being different. I think that's one thing that some entrepreneurs that I've certainly run into, they, they, they get enamored in pop culture about these disruptors that have arisen. You know, everybody knows about Uber and everybody knows, the, I mean, even Apple products, uh, what they disrupted, in, you know, in their time. And they get sort of romantically engaged with this idea of disrupting the, the industry or the service sector they're in. And I'm like, to your point, it's like, no, just change your thing. Just be creative with what you've got. And then if that turns out to be a disruptor for the industry, great. But, you know, let's, let's look at that trajectory and, and, and see what you've got, you know, that in front of you that's doable. Because otherwise you might get the classic paralysis by analysis because you're constantly trying to design and craft that huge giant disruptor force that honestly doesn't happen for everybody that comes up with an idea. That's, that's a really good point. I think a lot of this stuff is serendipity. It's hard to plan to be disruptive and but the, I guess the nimble part of this is, and, and also also the, the strategic and visionary aspect of it. If you have the context and you have the courage and the willingness to do something different, and you're thinking that way all the time, the serendipity kicks in and you see a moment where, hey, I can do something that's a little bit different than everybody else is doing. And thinking of the big picture, I think this is going to work, so let's execute. And you can be wrong, but if you're right, it may be that you've found a path that everybody else has ignored or doesn't believe is feasible and you're performing and you're starting to put everybody else's nose out of joint and you've become a disruptor through your success. And that's kind of the way I see it in retrospect, talking to people that actually are disruptors or have disrupted their industries, their markets. It's very rarely, I'm just going to come in like a big rock in a small pond, bam, I'm here. I'm disrupting everything. It doesn't work that way. If you know, you start in a garage you know, and, and you work your way into the, into the marketplace and you use your brain and you use your creativity and you use your vision and you keep your eyes open and you see things and you take action and you hold on tight, you know, be courageous and make it happen. And it may, it may be vanilla and status quo, but if it isn't, then okay, you're a disruptor. Right. <clears throat> 
Well, let me ask you this. As you travel your speaking circuit and, and doing the consulting work you do, what are some of the themes that you're hearing from business leaders today? You know, post-pandemic, what are the struggles that they're talking about? One of the, I guess the one that resonates the most, and, you know, I've got, I've got about five speaking programs. Most of them were, I started out being very much management leadership oriented, come, almost the same things we've just been talking about. And I think what I've found is, and although I call it, it's called motivational speaking, I guess. The theme that's resonated the most, I had a, uh, a speech in Atlanta uh, earlier this year, uh, keynote in front of 1,700 people, management people, and and talking to the senior leaders and pre preparing for that, I listened to what they had to say, and I said, it sounds like you guys want to figure out a way for people to have a, a toolbox to help them overcome their own sense of of insecurity and inability to, to actually affect change personally, professionally and their inhibitions and, and oh yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. So I created a program called the voices in your head. And I actually kind of intercede throughout the program vignettes from seal training and seal missions and practical business situations because it's essentially human beings are human beings. So whether you're a human being, let's say it's a, it's a startup that's in its third year and that, that person that's, you know, hawked everything they have and leveraged their house and they're sitting there on the, on the precipice of either failure or, or at least existence and survival. And, and some student in a buds class wondering whether he should quit or not. What's happening is they're, they're, they're listening. They're taking counsel of these voices in their mind that are coming up with every reason why they can't go forward, every reason why they aren't going to be successful. So essentially my theme is you have to be the one narrative voice in your own mind. You have to decide, I'm not listening to all this and you know, all you voices can just go away. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a determined stand and I'm going to decide what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. And that this is a little bit different than just doing affirmations every day. Affirmations are things something somebody else wrote for you. This is about a very personal decision to accept the situation, to decide how you fit in that situation, decide what your objectives are related to that situation, and then execute. Doesn't mean you're inoculated from it. I, I have the voices in my head even to this day for different reasons. And, and I have to stop and say, okay, what am I doing here? And deal with them. And I gave that presentation and I was... I was surprised, but I was very happy that, I mean, I had so many people come up to me uh, during and after on, on social media telling me that, that I really struck a chord, that it really resonated, that I gave them something that they could personally do immediately, like right after, right after the presentation, they could start exercising and practicing what I laid out and that they aren't weak and they aren't, you know, abnormal and they aren't a subpar professional for having those thoughts in their mind. They're human, and even Navy SEALs have those same thoughts. So, you know, th those are that's the biggest one that I've seen lately. I don't know if it's about, say, the the pandemic or anything. It might just be a general, I guess, posturing of, of the of the human race. We all take take counsel of our fears, and uh, but yeah, that that's the one that's resonating. Yeah. 
Well, a couple of years ago, kind of in the height of the pandemic, I was introduced to a term I hadn't heard before, but it came from one of my European colleagues. And then when I researched it, I, it turns out it was a U.S. Department of Defense term from the early 80s. It's called VUCA. And it's an acronym that stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. And the the point of the message when I learned it was we were talking about the current modern business world and everything that was going on. And when you think about it, if you're sitting in a leadership seat at a large business, you had the pandemic going on, you had all this remote work dynamic, we had all the social upheaval that happened simultaneously, the, the whole BLM movement, social injustice, defund the police, all these things that were swirling around, and it hit all of those buttons. Things were volatile socially and politically. They were certain things were definitely uncertain. For a long time, none of us knew what COVID really was, you know, was it the mysterious Black Death or whatever. Uh, things were definitely complex and everything was ambiguous. So as a leader, in, in my way of thinking, one of the chief things a leader needs to do is be able to create clarity for the people. Give them a clear sense of where we're going, what we need to do next, what does a win look like, that whole idea of clarity. And when you're living in a VUCA world, how do you find clarity? How do you define clarity? And in, in the clients I worked with over the last couple of years, I think that challenge alone of trying to cut through the clutter, cut through the noise, get back to that simple sense of clarity and focus has been a huge and sometimes almost mind-numbing challenge. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I, I, I was a CEO, I'm a CEO. Uh, had about a thousand employees across four different companies with, during this whole COVID period, and uh, I, um, I, I didn't feel like I was I was that unstable for most of the period until uh, September of twenty one, when our president ordered that all healthcare workers and all government contractors uh, were mandated by federal law to get the vaccine. And uh, up until that point, we'd, we'd handled everything pretty well. My leadership team had handled things pretty well, but the two halves of my organization, one's healthcare with over a hundred doctors and nurses and the other one's government contracting with at that time, close to 600 uh, government contractors. By the next morning, I knew I, I was in real trouble because 60% of the government contractors that we communicated with in the eight or nine hours after that uh, federal announcement said they weren't going to get the vaccine. And about 30% of my doctors and nurses. So after pretty much a year and four or five months of what I thought was surviving COVID, I was suddenly in a huge business crisis because I was about to basically the whole company, all the companies were going to go under unless I could figure out a way to deal with this. It, can't, it was a true black swan came out of nowhere. So, you know, we were able to recover. Uh, basically the government kept changing the, moving the goalposts on the, the deadlines, had to put together two or three people that did nothing but, but recruit 
to replace all those people in a, in a worst case scenario, uh, communicated with our customers, um, had our medical chief medical officer talking to everybody in, in late night because we had lots of people over the West Coast. We had late night uh, fact, fact sessions um, and it went on for four or five months. And that was the biggest disruptor. And that was the time I was really, really concerned about the impact of COVID. But, you know, it's, it's an unintended consequence maybe uh, of the government, but uh, everybody that I know and I've talked to, now lots of other people in, that, in those industries, we're going through the same thing I was going through and my team were going through with that much notice, like on an afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, television address, all of a sudden, ah, total panic. <laughs> so, right. you know, I, I, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much stuff you've lived through, you know, there's always something around the, around the corner that's about to, about to, you know, give you the old one up and, and challenge you again. And uh, that's why you just have to be, you have to be on your toes all the time. And you also have to keep an open mind. And as you said, if you don't have a vision, you won't have clarity. And even in a, in a fire, the person that starts to take off in a purposeful direction towards a, po a possible exit has just, just created the strategy, the vision and the clarity, you know, so it could be something as simple as a physical action. And in a lot of cases it's, it is as simple as taking some kind of action if you take no action, then you're just drifting. If you take some kind of an action, you can always adjust your course and bearing, you know, as you're getting, as you're getting uh, forward. But people, people want to see some kind of leadership movement. They don't want to just see somebody sitting there wondering because that just makes everything get worse. And, and then the spin, the emotional spin, those voices in your head start right. to get louder and louder. Well, I'm definitely a big fan, and if any of my clients are listening, they, they know they've heard, heard me talk about that voices in your head challenge, and uh, I spend it slightly differently. As an old real estate banker, I tell people, if, if you're going to run a business and own some real estate, there's, there's one particular parcel of land that's going to be the hardest you'll ever manage. It's the six inches between your ears. <laughs> And yeah. if you can figure out how to manage that real estate, keep it productive, keep it income producing, and uh, to use a phrase, you're going to be a lot better off. But you're you're absolutely right, and I agree 100%. It's the voices in your head that can be some of your biggest distraction and detraction. So uh, good point in, in being able to know how to think about that. Well, Marty, this has been great. I, I think we're about up on time here. Tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in talking to you and learning more, having you come be a speaker for them. Sure. All my books are on Amazon.com, but if you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, there's a link to all my books plus my articles and a lot more about my speaking and, and other activities. Awesome. Well, we will have all of that in the show notes, folks, as we always do. So for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye. But before I do that, uh, one full time, uh, Marty, again, thank you very much for sitting in. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And with that, we will sign off. And I want to thank you, the listener, for hanging with us, spending some of your valuable day listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Check us out on YouTube. we got a channel by the same name. Hop over there. You'll see a video version of this show and all the others. And if you've got an idea or a, a, a comment you want to share, just drop it in. And you can find me on all my social channels. 
look forward to talking to you again soon. Go out there today, make it a great one. We'll see you again next time. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.